Have you ever felt you had burdens you needed help carrying? You know, I remember one of my first international trips. I was about 18 years old, and it was during the first Gulf War. Um, that, I know, lets you figure out a little bit how old I am. <laughs> Older than I look, some people tell me. But... Um, It was actually during, it was actually supposed to be my senior class trip, and that's a whole other story, but it was during the war, and tickets were very cheap. Um, nobody wanted to travel very much. In fact, um, I, I well remember that in London Heathrow Airport, they had tanks around the airport concourses. I mean, it was a very tense time in the world, and ticket prices plummeted. And uh, we were able to get tickets to Europe for a song, for little or nothing. So we decided we were going to go. And we spent some, we had, we had, we had an itinerary planned. We were spending some time in the London. There used to be a vegetarian restaurant, a group of Adventists did there. And uh, we were working in the restaurant and, and uh, in exchange for our housing and so forth. But anyway, what I found out was that even though the airline allows you, or at that time allowed you, to pack a certain amount of luggage, that didn't mean that it was wise to take that much. And I remember this was before you had a lot of the wheeled baggage that we have today, and I just had this big old suitcase. If it had wheels, they didn't work very well, sort of like one of those hard shell suitcases. And then I had a, a big hanging bag, and I packed both of those bags with you know, like 70 pounds each. That's what you were allowed back then. And, and um, I, I packed all my things, and plus I had my camera bag, and, you know, I was, was going to be a really easily identifiable tourist. And um, what the problem was, that when we got to London Heathrow Airport, we had to take public transportation down to downtown London. And um, anyone here ever ridden the tube? Um, when you get to the subway in London, you don't have, you know, you just sort of expect that it's, you know, easy like here, but people don't take luggage on the tube. That's not the way that it's meant for commuters going to work, and so many of those stations don't have escalators. They have stairs. And so here I was with two 70-pound bags plus my carry-on bags, trying to go upstairs and downstairs and catch trains and get on trains and off of trains, and it's rush hour, and it was a nightmare. I can tell you I would have never made it if it hadn't have been for some very, very kind Londoners who literally, as I was struggling up a long flight of stairs, hundreds of stairs, they would come up behind me and just pick up the back end of the bag and help me carry them up to the top of the stairs. There are times in our lives when we need a burden bearer. And this is our text this morning, an invitation that Jesus gives to us, and we're going to spend some time unpacking this together. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, a well-known verse Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, there's different people. There are different people have different ways of being heavy laden. But I would propose to you today that pretty much all of us, in one way or another, are heavy laden. We're burdened. There are many ways that men and women today will find themselves heavy laden. In some senses, I think all of us are so. Worldly men and women burden themselves with the cares of life, the fruitless search for wealth and fame and honors. And you know the story. Most of us really in the Western world probably fit into this category. It's a rat race. Earlier this week, I was visiting in a home and... and uh, it wasn't a rat. It was a, it was a hamster. But that hamster was climbing into that wheel and running its heart out. 
and going nowhere. And I was looking at that little rodent and seeing myself. Isn't it true? Too often we are running full speed, chasing after something that we're not even sure what it is, but our neighbors are chasing it too. You heard the expression, keeping up with the Joneses? Often we're not just keeping up with the Joneses, we are the Joneses. And we're trying to stay the Joneses. And we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know the story. But it's a burden. It is. It's something that is never enough. We're never satisfied. Worldly men and women burden themselves with the fruitless search for honor and for fame. The frivolous and the sensual labor in pursuit of pleasures. The slave of Satan and his own lusts is the merest drudge on earth. And those who labor to establish their own righteousness also labor in vain. You know, sometimes, having found no satisfaction with the things of the world, we attempt to use the same techniques, simply turning them into the church. You know what I'm saying? There's a human tendency, we have a human tendency to try to earn our salvation, to try to merit favor with God, to try to make ourselves feel better, to to apply band-aids on our wounds by the things that we do. And sometimes, having not found the salve to be satisfying that the world offers, sometimes in our humanity, our human tendencies, we turn even to good things to try to make ourselves feel better, to try to somehow make up for the deficiencies that are glaring in our lives. We know they're there. And good things are good to do. Don't don't take me wrong. I'm glad when people are going to church. I'm glad when people are doing things for others. I'm glad when people are giving of themselves. But all these good things that we might do can never atone for our sins. They can never heal our wounds. There's only one who can, and that's Jesus. And oh, it's so much better when the good things that we fill our lives with are as a response to the healing that we've received rather than an attempt to heal ourselves. Oh, there's many people, even good people, doing good things that are sort of like hamsters on a wheel, burdened with the attempt to make themselves feel better, to establish their own righteousness. The convicted, convinced sinner is heavy laden with guilt and terror, and the tempted and afflicted believer has labors and burdens. I think it's safe to say that no matter who I am today, no matter who you are today, Jesus' words have some application to us. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take your burdens. Notice with me what he says. He gives us an invitation, and, and we, we, we see that as we continue on. We see that in the next verse, in, in Matthew chapter 11, and verse 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find, what does he say? You shall find rest unto your souls. Rest in a troubled world. Rest, rest in a rat race life. Yes, Jesus offers it even for Westerners in 2013. Jesus says, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. This image of a yoke, I want us to think about that a little bit. I think when I think of a yoke, this is pretty much the image that I would usually have, right? This is sort of a yoke that, I think that's, I think that's early American yoke. That's the way we would typically imagine a yoke for cattle to be, right? With this wooden uh, U-shaped bar that would go around the neck to keep the yoke from going, um, from sliding back. Now, the, the, real, the, real, uh, the real work that is done... Some yokes are made where they will have 
you know, like for some cows that have, well, they actually have yokes that are made to go on the horns where they, they pull from the head. And they have other yokes that are made to go on the back. You know how some cows have a hump in their back? Um, they, they have different types of yokes for different types of cows. But most yokes, it's meant to rest right along the shoulder here. And as they, you see how the point of, the point of load is sort of lower? It's going to be distributed, the, the weight is going to be distributed along these bars. And so in primitive times, when they didn't always have the ability to bend these strong, these strong bands to go around the shoulders and neck of the, the yoke, of the, of the cattle, the yoke might look something, well, something more like this. And this is a little dark, you can't see that. But this does, instead of those bars, this actually has a leather strap around it. And this is, this is in India. And um, you can't see that very well. Let me see if I can get a better, uh, a better illustration here. Um, something more like that. That's a more primitive yoke that would have probably been in use when Jesus was speaking of these things. It was, you can see, it was easier to make, right? You didn't have to you didn't have to heat up and steam or however they would bend those, those hard wood uh, U-shaped uh, binders. They would simply put these straight poles that would be fitted so they would fit along the, the shoulder of the, of the oxen, and then they would have bands, straps, that they would tie around the neck to keep it from moving or to keep it from going anywhere. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he says, take my yoke upon you. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58, until I began studying yokes, I did not understand exactly what this passage meant. But in Isaiah chapter 58, there, it, it describes the undoing of yokes. This is the point that I'm trying to make. The, the point is not, Jesus is not here trying to say to us, you who are unyoked, take my yoke upon you. Jesus is here saying, you who have a heavy yoke, I'll exchange yokes with you. Okay? Notice what we see here in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 6. This is talking about God's people and the work that they are to do. And it says in Isaiah 58 verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. When the Bible here says to loose the bands of wickedness, the, the word there, the noun used, translated bands, it's, it's describing specifically these straps that were used to hold a yoke on the oxen. You understand what the Bible's saying? The Bible's saying men and women today are are encumbered with heavy yokes. They're encumbered with burdens that God does not design that they should bear. They're, they're weighed down, and, and he, he identifies at least one of those yokes, doesn't he? He says, I will loose the bands of what? Of wickedness or unrighteousness or sin. This is the yoke that, that, that binds us, that, that pushes us down. The greatest burden that we can bear is the weight of sin, because sin separates us from God, and sin's consequences are eternal death. And so here he says, is this not the fast that I have chosen, the work that I want you to do, to loose the bands of wickedness, to untie those yokes of those who are in bondage of sin? The ESV version says, is this not the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? and to break every yoke. You see, the language used in Isaiah 58 and verse 6 is specifically yoke language. It's talking about those straps, those bonds, those bands that would keep a yoke onto an oxen. Now, any of you ever, any of you ever spent time, probably not very many people here have ever spent much time with a yoke of oxen. Anyone here? Just out of curiosity? I haven't, besides in foreign lands where I've ridden in ox carts and that type of thing. Um, but I've never myself worked with oxen. I have. The closest thing I've, I've come to, to, to that is riding horses. Anyone here ever ridden horses? I figured that would be a little different, different response. When I grew up, we had horses. And um, you, you know what it's like. If you, 
saddle a horse and you go for a long ride and it's, it's a wonderful experience. You come back from your ride and you take the saddle off, right? And it's sweaty underneath the saddle and you brush out the, underneath the pad and, and then you let the horse go free. What do they do? They run and often they roll because they're so happy to get out from underneath that saddle. I can imagine a yoke of oxen would feel the same way. I can imagine after a long day of work, what a relief it would be to have that yoke lifted, to feel that strap being untied, and to know the moment is coming when that weight is going to be lifted off of, off of your shoulders, and know that you can head to the barn or head to the field or head to wherever it is to get some refreshment. You see, this is the work that God has chosen for us, to loose the band's of, the, of, of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke, according to the English Standard Version. Isaiah 56 describes for us a wonderful Savior who wants us to be set free from the yokes that bind us, to undo the straps of the yoke, as, as I mentioned. You see, it's not a matter of having no yoke or His yoke. Sometimes when we read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, we sort of think, well, you know, Jesus is inviting us to have his yoke, and we imagine ourselves as being unyoked, footloose and fancy free, and now we're going to go to his yoke, which he says is easy and light, it's, and, he, and, he, and, and he talks about how he's meek and gentle and so forth. But the reality is that it's not a matter of no yoke or his yoke. The reality is it's our yoke or his yoke. That's the reality. The reality is whether we're going to bear our own burdens, our own problems, our own trials, our own difficulties, our own guilt, our own pains, ourselves, or whether we're going to allow the one who has borne them for us to carry them all the way. It's a choice between our yoke and his yoke, and he offers an exchange. Notice with me just a few chapters back in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to read beginning in verse 4. Isaiah 53 and verse 4. And when you're there, can you say amen? amen. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When Jesus came on into this world, when He came as our Redeemer and as our Savior, He came not with all of the, the panoply of heaven. He came not with all the praise of the angels. He came not with all of the, the, the entrapments of royalty. He came and He was born in a peasant's, even lower than a peasant's lifestyle. He was born in a barn. His first crib was a manger. And someone could look at him and say, this Jesus, this Jesus, man, he really had a rough life. He really was an unfortunate person. He grew up in Nazareth with stepbrothers and sisters that didn't understand him, with a dysfunctional family. He lived a life where he was not understood by his peers. They ridiculed him and made fun of him because he was so persnickety about living the righteous life that his father wanted him to live. And we can look at Jesus, and, and the human reaction would have been, Jesus had, Jesus had it hard. But the point that Isaiah is trying to make here is not that Jesus had it hard, but that Jesus had it hard for us. So that when he came to this world, he could understand what we are going through. He could understand the, the difficulties that humanity faces. He could understand the trials that we face. Notice with me, it says in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? All we like sheep have gone astray. As Paul would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are a part of the yoke that Jesus bore. And even though we could look at Jesus and we could, we could, we could say, wow, he's really, he's really not favored by God. He's got it rough. He's had a hard life. 
Even though we could look at him in his hour of anguish, in his trial at Gethsemane, and say, wow, God really has separated his, his presence from him. He really has burdened him with guilt. The point that Isaiah is making is that was my sin. That was your sin. Jesus could have come with a retinue of thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. He could have come and lived in an abode that would put any of the mansions on earth to shame. Jesus could have had anything he wanted materialistically. He's the creator. But Jesus gave up everything in order to wear our yoke in order to feel the burdens that you and I feel, in order to know our pains, to know our sufferings, and eventually to know our sins. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53, verse 6. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The yokes that Isaiah 58 says are to be lifted from the backs of sinners today. Those yokes were placed on Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a sheep, a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Oh, my friends, if we could only grasp this concept of what Jesus offers, it would be a no-brainer. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. Sometimes we struggle. I'll be honest with you, I'm ashamed to even verbalize this. But sometimes I, too, have struggled to surrender my life to Jesus. The devil has all of these mirages painted for us. And just a little bit further, if we'll run on that hamster wheel just a little bit longer, if we'll keep trying and trying and doing and doing, just around the corner, they'll be, they'll be, we'll find that satisfaction. The devil always holds it out like a carrot on a stick. And somehow, blinded as we are, we find it a hard decision to yield our lives to Jesus. And if we only had the blinders taken off our eyes, if we could only see things as they are, it is is an insult to our intelligence that we should struggle to make this decision. The, the, The exchange of our yoke for Jesus' yoke ought to be the easiest decision any person could ever make because it's the best deal anyone can ever have. To exchange his yoke of freedom and righteousness and happiness and holiness and peace with our old yoke of of sin and stress and pain and turmoil and grudges and bitterness and gossip and all of the rest that comes with it, the canker sores that have, that have eaten into our shoulders. It's a no-brainer. Jesus offers us so much, something so much better. The best deal we could ever possibly imagine He offers for us here. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Why? For us, for me, for you. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. Oh, those yokes we've been bearing. They leave sores. They leave scars. But Jesus even heals those if we'll take his yoke upon us. Let me tell you, friends, I understand. I may be speaking with a little hyperbole here. I understand there's a real struggle because our human nature doesn't yield the throne of our hearts very easily. But intellectually, I at least want you to be convinced intellectually today that it ought not to be a struggle. If it's a struggle, it ought to only be an emotional struggle. 
And God will give you victory over that. He will. He will give you victory over the emotional struggle that is yielding to Him. If you intellectually know it's what you want to do and you choose. The power of the will. You see, my friends, Jesus offers us an exchange. I love this passage in Desire of Ages, page 25. There's, there's not many ways that I could imagine saying it better. It's a paraphrase, you might say, of Isaiah 53. Christ was treated as who deserves? Christ was treated as we deserve. That we may be treated as He deserves. Stop there. Isn't that enough? How does Jesus deserve to be treated? He is the Son of God. And now because of what He has done for us, because He came and was treated as we deserve to be treated, because He, could, he took our yoke and offers us His, Jesus now is our elder brother, and we too can become the sons of God. Can someone say amen? amen. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. That's you and me. If we'll receive Jesus, we become the sons of God too. He calls us His brethren. We're a part of His family. We become heirs of the eternal kingdom that He deserves to receive. What an amazing, amazing opportunity we have. We're not talking about heir to some earthly kingdom or some earthly you know, dynasty or estate. This is heir to the riches of the universe. And Jesus offers it to us in exchange for what? In exchange for our, for our rotten sores and putrefying sins and smelly manure that we're holding on to. He was treated as we deserve that we might be treated as He deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which He had no share that we might be justified by His righteousness, in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was His. With His stripes we are healed. Oh, I'm thankful for Jesus this morning, aren't you? I'm thankful that Jesus offers to take our burdens. With His stripes... We are healed. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read verse 21. An amazing, amazing verse. Paul states it rather matter-of-factly here. But in it is, is encapsulated what may be one of the mysteries of eternity. I would propose that this is something we will never fully understand. We will never fully be able to comprehend what Jesus did for us as Paul describes it here today. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Stop there for a moment. It's talking about God. God has made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Paul throws in that last phrase, who knew no sin, because he wanted to remind us of the even greater burden that sin is in a pure environment. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do any of you, any of you remember your first pangs of guilt when you were a child? I do. I don't know. Maybe it's just I'm strange that way, but I may have even told you this story before. Forgive me if I'm telling it again, but I remember the first time I felt the oppression of guilt in my soul. I think there comes a point at a certain age where you're old enough to understand right and wrong. And um, I was about five years old, maybe six, I don't remember exactly, but I decided to go out and improve the front yard, the appearances in the front yard, by pruning the redbud tree that stood in the center of the front yard. And I took my found in the garage. My dad was at work. I don't know. My mom was busy, probably. And um, I found in the garage this limb saw, you know, the 
with a band like this and a sharp blade with these big old sharp teeth. And um, I found this limb saw and I went to prune the redbud tree. And here I was, five or six years old, and I was doing my logger best, you know, to, to, to make this improvement in our front yard, which was probably a little less than an improvement. But I'm, I'm whacking away at random places and land, random limbs. And um, my sister, you know, I had an older sister, and what are older sisters good for? But um, she, um, thankfully, I had an older sister who spared me probably what would have been worse damage to the tree. She went and told my mother. And by the time she had gone and told my mother and my mother was retrieved, um, I had figured out what was going on and I'd put away the limb saw and was acting as if nothing happened. And so um, my mom asked me, she said, Chester, did you cut the branches off the redbud tree? Not as if they were easy to hide, you know? And um, I said, no. And as soon as I said no, I knew I had lied. And I was terror-stricken. I felt so guilty. I felt awful. Not because I thought I was going to get in trouble, but just because I knew that I had lied. And I knew lying was not a good thing. You know, we have consciences. And at that point, my conscience was very tender. And I remember I was so, I was so distraught about this, I had to go immediately and apologize to my mom and... I think I was crying about it. I mean, I was just like so, so disturbed that I had lied. And I, I don't know why I went to find consolation in my older sister, but I did. And um, <laughs> she, I said to her, I remember saying to her, I said, it's, the, it's just so, it's such a big deal to me because it's the first time I ever told a lie. And she said to me, Chester, no, it's not. You've told lots of lies. <laughs> And probably she was right. <laughs> probably I had, you understand. But I had not done so in an environment where my mind understood right versus wrong. I hadn't done so knowingly, willingly saying, I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm going to do the wrong thing anyway. And there's a difference. We come to a point in our lives where we recognize the difference between right and wrong. And oh, I wish... I wish to God that my conscience were as tender today as it was when I was five years old. You know, as we go through life, we, we deaden our conscience. The, the Bible talks about them as being seared with a hot iron because we sort of shove things away that our conscience tells us. Right? That's a whole other topic. You know the conscience is not, is not directly God's voice speaking to us. It's actually a product of our education. We can find that in the Word of God We'll have a sermon about that sometime. It's amazing. God actually offers to cleanse our consciences. And the good news of that is I can have a conscience again like I had when I was five years old. But imagine, imagine the guilt of perverted adults for 6,000 years being imposed upon someone who had never, never known sin. His whole life, Jesus had maintained oneness with the Father. His whole life, Jesus says, I do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. His whole life, Jesus had had. had had not been willing to allow anything, not even the busyness of ministry, to get between him and his relationship with his God, with his Father God. He was God too. His whole life, Jesus had never felt the convicting pangs of guilt. And now as he comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the weight of the sins of the world, is being lowered onto his shoulders. It was such an incredible burden. It was such an overwhelming yoke for Jesus that Jesus would pray three times, Lord, if possible, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to save humanity, 
Save them some other way. Three times. Jesus praised that prayer in the garden. Why? Because God was making him to be sin for us, for me. My yoke was being laid on his shoulder. My cares, my anxieties, my worries, my fears, my sins were being laid upon the spotless Lamb of God, the one who knew no sin, never, ever. And it was almost more than he could bear. And so Jesus prays that prayer three times. Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not what I choose, but what you choose. If we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and faith by looking at Jesus, who bore our burdens. We need to turn our eyes to Gethsemane. We need to turn our eyes to the cross. Christ suffered humiliation to save us from everlasting disgrace. He consented to have scorn and mockery and abuse fall upon Him in order to shield us. It was a It was our transgression that gathered the veil of darkness about His divine soul and extorted the cry from Him as of one smitten and forsaken of God. He bore our sorrows. He was put to grief for our sins. He made Himself an offering for sin that we might be justified through God by Him. Everything noble and generous in man responds to a contemplation of what Jesus has done for us. How about you, my friends? I remember the story of, a, of an early settler school. You know, it was different in those days. The, the, the schools in America were community schools. The town hired a teacher, and in this particular village, they couldn't keep a teacher. The kids were so rowdy and mean. They would only be around for a few days or weeks before they would be gone. And a young, a young teacher applied for the, for the job, and when the school director looked at him, he thought, this isn't going to last very long. Do you know what you're asking for? Every teacher we've had gives up in defeat. And the young teacher said, well, listen, I'll try it. Let me try it. And so when he appeared for duty the first day of the school, there's one big fellow, Big Tom, who was sitting in the back of the room, and the kids were sizing the teacher up as he came into the classroom. They looked at that teacher, and Big Tom says, he's a little guy. I can, I can whip him by myself. And when the teacher said, good morning, the whole class screamed, good morning, sarcastically at the top of their lungs. They were going to do everything they could to harass and to annoy this, this man. Well, the, the young teacher actually had a, a, a plan, and he was able to convince the students that, that instead of him governing them, they were going to govern themselves. And uh, they sat down together as a classroom, and they decided what the rules would be. Some of you may have heard this story. There would be rules for different things that they couldn't do. They couldn't, they couldn't cheat, and they couldn't steal, and they couldn't do all the different things that uh, the rules, they wrote down a dozen or so rules that the school was going to have. And then he allowed the students to set the punishment as well. The punishment for these infractions would be, and they all decided what it would be. One day, Big Tom's lunch was missing. His lunchbox was empty. And um, the penalty for stealing was a beating. This wasn't uh, 2013. Ten times, ten times on the back without a coat. When they looked around and they found out, an investigation revealed, the littlest boy in the school had stolen Big Tom's lunch. And uh, little, little Teddy. So the next day, the teacher announced, we found the thief, and we have to follow the punishment that we have agreed. And he asked the little boy to come forward and take off his coat. 
And as a little boy came forward, he begged. He said, please, teacher, please, teacher, don't make me take off my coat. He said, no, this is the, this is the punishment. Everyone's agreed. Don't, let me, don't make me take off my coat. Finally, he had no other choice. And as he took off his coat, the classroom became silent. As they saw his skin's emaciated body, he had no shirt on under his coat. He only had his suspenders holding his pants, pants up. And he said, I don't have a shirt. I just borrowed my big brother's coat. You know, dad, daddy died and mom doesn't have a job and I was just so hungry. The teacher didn't know what to do. I mean, you know how, but the rule's the rule. And as he was about to begin the punishment, Big Tom, the back of the room, jumped up. He came running forward. He said, teacher, don't, 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 don't punish him. Don't punish him. Can you punish me instead? That was a little bit of a surprise. The teacher asked the class, is that all right? Is that all right? And they all agreed. The big Tom, whose lunch had been stolen, if he wanted to, he could take the beating to little Teddy. And that class that day hardly had a dry eye. Because as big Tom took off his coat, took the tin licks across his back. Little Teddy threw his arms around him and said, thank you. And you know, as I think of that story, I think that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. We're the scrawny kids. We don't have, we don't, even in our Saturday finest, even in our Sabbath clothes, we don't have a thread on our backs. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We deserve the beating that Jesus took. We do, and if you're still in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to notice here, I want you to notice the next verse. You know these chapter divisions and verses are all artificial. They're supplied later. Paul did not write this with a break between verse 21 and verse 1. And he says here, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God. How? In vain. You see, there's many people today who will say, Well, we're saved by grace. And I will say, Yes, we are saved by grace. I believe we're saved by grace. But did you know that grace alone cannot save you? I'm not saying our works have to be added to it. That's what I'm saying at all. I'm saying God's grace is there for everybody. But some, for some, grace is in vain. The Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 1, we then... Working together with Him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You know the text in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, where he says, For by grace are you saved through what? Through faith. The grace of Christ. Jesus has already borne your yoke and my yoke. Faith is what allows that to not be in vain. Faith is when we accept that sacrifice for me personally. When we accept that He has died for me personally. You and I have a response to make. When we by faith accept Jesus' yoke in place of ours, when we recognize that His death on Calvary's cross should have been mine, should have been yours, when we're willing to let Him loose the bands of iniquity to take our sins outward or inward, public or private, and having given Him that permission, when I trust His promise by faith, then it can be said that I am saved by grace. 
through faith. How about you today, my friend? Is Jesus your burden bearer? Is that your experience today? I'm reminded of a story of a, a nurse in a pediatric ward who used to, when she was checking the, you know, hearts and lungs, I don't know, of little, little patients, she would, she would sometimes plug the stethoscope into their ears and then listen, let them listen to the heart, their own heart beating away. She never got a response like the one she got from little four-year-old David. She, he, she gently tucked the stethoscope into David's ears, and she placed the stethoscope over his heart, and he drew his eyebrows together for a moment as if puzzled by what he heard, lost in the mystery of this strange tap, 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 tap. Then his face broke out in a wondrous grin. What do you think that is? She asked him. It must be Jesus knocking. Today, I wonder if Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. I wonder if as you've contemplated what Jesus has done for you, if there aren't some burdens that you want to lay at his feet. If there aren't some things that you would like to say, Lord, I've carried it long enough. I've carried it long enough. I'm going to let you have it. You've already borne it. I'm going to take your yoke upon me instead. Perhaps that's your desire. Perhaps that's what you would like to experience. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to make an appeal here today. I'm going to ask that as we sing our closing song, if there's somebody here who has a burden, it could be any kind, any kind of burden, but a burden that you've been carrying and that you've heard Jesus' voice speaking to you today that you want to give to him, I'm going to invite you as we're singing just to come down and join me at the front I have some burdens that I want to give to Jesus today. And maybe some of you do too. We're going to sing together, if I can find it here, our closing hymn, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, number 476. And this is between you and Jesus. If there's something that you say, Jesus... I want to give this burden to you. This is something I'm going to let you carry. Just come down and let's sing and pray together. Number 476. Let's stand together as we sing. sorrow and care hearts are lonely and drear burdens are lifted at Calvary Jesus is very near burdens are lifted at Calvary 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 Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Cast your soul on Jesus today. Leave your worry and fear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. 
Jesus is very near. Troubled soul, the Savior can see every heartache and tear. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very near. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Calvary, Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Jesus is very Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we just want to pause, and as we've come to the foot of the cross, we want to thank you for being our burden bearer. We want to thank you for being willing to take our yokes, to bear our burdens. You invite us, Lord, to cast all of our care upon you, for you care for us. Oh, Lord, today we come, not because we deserve to come, but we, be, we come because of Jesus. Because He invites us to come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and He promises to give us rest. Lord, today you see each heart, you know each life. You know the burdens that we carry, the burdens that we bear, Lord, you know the, the decision that each one has made here today. I want to pray that you'll bless each of us, that we might make the most intelligent decision possible, despite our emotions at times, but that we might accept your yoke in exchange for ours. Amen. Oh, Lord, today I pray for each person who's come forward. You only know. You and them alone know the burdens they are giving to you. But I pray that they will find peace in their hearts, joy in their hearts, that they will know you love them personally, individually, that you've tasted death for them, their, their death, and that you give them today your life. Oh, Lord, may we each one Experience what it means to feel your light and easy yoke upon us. And may your grace that you've freely bestowed for us not be in vain as we accept it by faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.